0: Happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. Uh, Before we get started, let's take a moment to acknowledge our veterans on this Veterans Day weekend. just wanted to say thank you to those men and women who are among us, who have served us. If you want to give a round of applause to the veterans, that'd be great. Amen. Well, with that... Uh, we are going to, in the words of the 1990s recording artist Salt and Pepper, <laughs> talk about sex. We are in first Thessalonians, chapter four and we're going to cover the first eight verses together this morning. This passage can be uncomfortable for us, but it is crucial to us if we want to live in such a way as to please God. Uh, The wider section is concerned with holiness, with sexual holiness, with our holiness and our life together as a church, with holiness in our civil lives, and with holiness as it relates to our hopes and expectations. Thessalonians, from this point forward is all about our holiness. And today, we are going to be focusing on sexual holiness. Your main idea is this. Be distinct from the world. Practice sexual holiness. That's your main idea, and with that, would you stand with me as we read? God's holy and perfect word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are walking, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, Because the Lord is an avenger in these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit To you, this is the word of the Lord. May he carve its eternal truths on our hearts. And let's pray together. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. And we, by faith in Christ, by your grace and your mercy, have been made your holy people. We thank you that you have set us apart as your holy people, that you are making us holy as we grow in godliness, and that when Christ returns, we will be fully, once and for all, holy. Pray that as you do your work of sanctification in us this morning, that we would yield to your Holy Spirit. Pray that you would give us ears to hear your word, and to obey it, not as a means by which we might earn your favor, but because we already have your favor, and we want to please you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Paul begins this section of the letter, and it is the second half, probably less than half, of the book of Thessalonians, after giving us three chapters of thanksgiving He has been saying, Lord, I am so thankful for the Thessalonians. He has been encouraging the Thessalonians in all that they have been doing. And he continues to encourage them here. He says, finally, we ask and urge you, you know, we implore you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, walk is a metaphor for how you would live. So how you're living, how you are walking and to please God, just as you are doing. Literally the text there says, just as you are walking. As Paul was saying, uh, along with Aerosmith, you're walking this way, and I, I want you to keep walking this way. Keep doing it. Keep grinding. Keep up the good work. It's a good reminder to us that even when we are being faithful in the Christian life, It is good to have brothers and sisters around us who continue to exhort us and to push us to get stronger in the Lord, to trust Christ more, to grow in grace. And that's what Paul is doing here. He wants the people to grow. He's pushing them not to learn something new, but you'll notice to practice what they've already been taught. Verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And what is it that he's taught them that they know that he wants to be more specific about? This is the, the one, one of the things you know that we want you to recall that you know. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Sanctification, same word for holiness there. Think it's better to do it, holiness? Uh, the reason they do sanctification is they want you to see Paul is expecting a growth here. Um, but but really, holiness fits better. You'll see the word holiness there in verse 4. You see it in verse 7. You see it next to Holy Spirit in verse 8. Uh, at the end of the book, at chapter 5, verse 23, you have the word sanctify again. It's the word for holiness there. And then just before our section, you see in verse 13, is that he's praying That God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, literally his holy ones. Holiness is in view here. And so before we get to holiness, though, I should back up. He wants the people to know what God's will is. And that is a subject that really gets Christians excited. But I also think it's one that is a little bit fuzzy most of the time that we talk about it because we fail to talk about God's will in the proper categories. And so I'm going I'm to suggest a few categories uh, this morning and comment on the first, and then we're going to move on uh, to talk about the category that Paul is concerned with this morning. So first category, first way of thinking about God's will is God's will of direction. This is the one Christians are usually most interested in. God's will of direction refers to what I ought to do in any and every specific situation in my life. So this is what people are after when they're thinking, you know, I want to know what God's will is in my life for uh, what job I would do, who I would marry, where I would retire, or where I would go to church. Now, there are a lot of people that will teach you you can discern exactly God's will of direction for your life. I'm not one of them. I believe that God has given us his word and his spirit and his people so that we can use our wisdom to make good decisions. And insofar as we are obeying God's will of desire, his commands, we're going to get to that one in a second, we are free to make decisions and do what we like. So you can think about that. We can talk more about it later. But that is God's will of direction. Secondly, we want to talk about God's will of decree. God's will of decree, this gives expression to everything that God has ordered that will take place throughout time and space. God's will of decree cannot be thwarted. It was determined before the foundation of the world that the Lamb of God would be slain for the sins of the world. And there was no way anyone could stop God's will of decree in that from being accomplished. God's will of direction, God's will of decree. And then thirdly, and Paul's concern this morning for us, is God's will of desire or his will of command. This gives expression to how God wants us to live, how he would desire for us to live. And God's will of desire, his will of command, can be disobeyed, can be disregarded. And it's God's will of desire that Paul is concerned with. And we say, well, what is it that God is concerned with, with the Thessalonians? Their holiness. What does God want for us? What is his will for us in regards to his desire? Our holiness. We are to be God's holy people. We're to be a people defined by holiness. A people that is distinct from the world set apart because of our faith in Christ. We are to be a people who have lives that are consistent with God's holy character. We aim to please God and to live in a way that's consistent with his character. Again, not because we are trying to earn our salvation, but because we have our salvation. You can think about it this way. Uh, Children don't obey their parents in order to be included in the family. One of the things uh, my boys will sometimes happily do for me is is they will go out into my yard where some of you had gifted me a magnolia tree. It was pretty big. Uh, And, you know, first week I was here, I was like, this is some gift that I have to like dig in the ground and then put it in the ground. There's a lot of work. This is a little, I don't know, is this a gift or are they trying to play a joke? I don't know. But but we got it in the ground. And one of the things with magnolias, you got to water them all the time. I think. I think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know. But I ask my kids to water it, and the reason that they go and water the magnolia is not so they will be my children. They go and water the magnolia because they want to honor me as their father, because they love me, and because they want to please me. Likewise, we as Christians aim to live holy lives, not to earn our way into God's favor or into God's family, but because we are already in God's family and we want to please our good heavenly Father. So how are we to please him with our holiness specifically? Paul gives us a concrete answer here in verse 3, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So Paul is saying you are to be holy sexually. You are to abstain from sexual immorality. The word there is a Greek word that you know. See, you guys know way more Greek than you thought. You had a word last week or two weeks ago too that you knew. Here it is, you ready? Porneia. Porneia. Y'all can hear our English word porn in the word pornêa. Pornea is a Greek word, it's a broad umbrella word that covers any and every kind of sexual immorality. So any sexual intercourse that takes place outside of marriage is considered porneia. This word includes all sorts of sexual misbehavior. Fornication, sodomy, homosexual activity, incest, adultery. And bestiality. Leviticus lists all of these for us quite explicitly. And I'm glad that it does because culturally, we are on a slippery slope to moral degeneracy that was, I mean, we can't even imagine. I saw an article this week being promoted by Princeton ethicist Peter Singer that was encouraging sexual relationships between people and children. And calling it morally good. But but the Bible is prepared for this sort of thinking. It excludes it under the banner of porneia. This is sexual immorality. Porneia is widespread in our culture. And the reason Paul is writing about it to the Thessalonians is because it was widespread in their culture. Sometimes I think we have this idea that sexual immorality just got started in the 60s. Like before that, nobody did anything that was out of step. But it's not true. There's nothing new under the sun. Sexual immorality has been around a long, long time, and God's people have always been called to abstain from it, to refuse it, to only have sex inside the context of marriage. Paul elaborates, and maybe this one sentence could summarize our whole eight verses this morning. You see it in verse five. It says, not, when we're talking about our sexual behaviors, don't act in ways, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Don't be thrown off by Gentiles there, right? The The church in Thessalonica is predominantly Gentiles. There are Jews there too. But what Paul is doing is he is referring to this church, as he does elsewhere in the New Testament, as a renewed Israel. Israel is God's people. They're holy. And everybody who's not following God is a Gentile or a pagan, right? Some of your translations probably have pagan there. Or you could even translate it, um, not in the passion of lust like the world who does not know God. You do know God, and therefore, you need to live in a way that is consistent with that, in a way that's distinct from the world, refusing porneia. And so now, now Paul has laid out for us, this is the will of God for you, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And he's going to get very practical. He's going to say, well, how can I fight? How can I abstain from sexual immorality? And he gives us some information here. Verse 4 that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in holiness and honor. I'm going to explain that in a second because every one of you have, I'm going to guess, in your translation. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust, verse 5, like the Gentiles who do not know God, so that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in these things. So verse 4, why have we opted, have I opted, to translate that, possess his own vessel? Well, the easy answer is literally in Greek, it just says, possess his own vessel. And what's happened in most all of your translations is they've said, that's going to sound very weird to contemporary English speakers. And it's going to be unclear what Paul means. And so all they've done is they've said, vessel is a metaphor And they've done the work to try to help you. Now, there are three options for this metaphor, this word vessel, what it could possibly be. The first one, and it's the one reflected in most translations, is that when it says each one should possess his own vessel, the idea is that he should possess his own body, be self-controlled. That's option number one, his body. Option number two is going to make you really uncomfortable. Uh, The idea is that each one should possess his own body part in holiness and honor. That Paul is making reference to the male sexual organ, and he's basically saying, don't be led along by these passions. With me? The third option, the one I prefer, is that possess his own vessel refers to, vessel there refers to one's wife. One's wife. Let me give you the reasons why I think that. One, the cultural expectation of marriage. Most everybody in the culture at that time, would have been married. Secondly, verse 6 tells us that this sin is against one's brother. Third, the conversation about sex in the Bible, any time you hear sex discussed in the Bible, there is always the backdrop of God's design for marriage. Number four, Extra-biblical literature from the same time period uses the word vessel to refer to wives. Number five, rabbinic literature uses the word vessel to refer to wives and sometimes with sexual connotations. Reason number six, Peter uses this metaphor of vessel to refer to wives in his epistle. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And number seven is because I, I think that this was a common metaphor that most would have been familiar with, and it's one that is utilized in the book of Proverbs. Listen to how similar this section from Proverbs sounds to our section in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to have the the metaphor, there's a cistern or a vessel in view, and we're also going to have the threat of God's judgment. So Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. For all these reasons, I think Paul's exhortation here is not merely negative, right? Control yourself, fight against your animal urges for sexual gratification. I think he's giving them the positive exhortation. He's saying, possess your own vessel. Delight in the wife that you have. Drink from your own cistern. Don't be like the Gentiles drinking from whatever cistern you see when you're thirsty, no, drink from your own cistern. Enjoy marriage and its fruits, and that will protect you from porneia. Bottom line is this, whichever way you understand this metaphor, that the sexual practices of God's holy people must be holy, distinct from the world. Paul lays out, motivations or reasons for this throughout the text. You can look at verse 1, sexual holiness pleases God. Verse 7, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Verse 8, he has given us the gift of his Holy Spirit to promote sexual purity and sexual holiness. Verses 6 and 8 tell us that Porneia is a sin, both vertically against God and horizontally against one's brother. And verse 6, the latter part of it, warns us that God is an avenger. All of these verses collaborate together to tell us we are to be holy. We are to be a people who fight against pornea. And so we have to ask the question how do we, as a church, fight against sexual immorality? How do we promote purity? First, I think we must understand the beauty of God's design for marriage and family and honor it. Each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. Husbands and wives are fit for one another. They are like a lock and key, a bow and a violin. Marriage is where music is made. God designed it that way. God created sex as the covenant sign which seals the union of husband and wife. Sex is the signature on the divine marriage license. God intends marriage and sex within it for promise. This is how a husband and wife promise to one another. He intends it for partnership. Remember in Genesis, it is not good for man to be alone. I will create a helper fit for him. It is for pleasure. The two shall become one in the flesh. And it's for procreation remember the command be fruitful and multiply adam couldn't do that alone and then most incredibly marriage and sex within it has always been all the way back in genesis intended to teach us about the relationship between christ and the church ephesians chapter 5 verse 31 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage and sexual union, it's a parable that teaches us about how we are united to Jesus, about how Jesus takes us as his own. Gives us his name. How Jesus cares for us and protects us and provides for us. About how Jesus will never leave us and never forsake us. Marriage and sexuality are about the gospel. They're about Christ in the church. We should have a much higher view of sexuality than the world around us one that is consistent with the purposes enumerated throughout the Bible. We must teach these things, church. Yes, it might be a little awkward, but we must teach them. Parents, you must teach the true story of sexuality to your children because the world is full of lies. You must teach them what is true and good and beautiful because there are plenty of people out there who will teach them what is ugly and false. Teach your children about sex. Otherwise, they will learn that sex is not sacred, that it is a normal bodily appetite to be fulfilled and satisfied, sort of like eating. Just go to whatever restaurant you're feeling that day. The world will teach them that sex should be however, whenever, with whomever or whatever they please. The world will teach your children that God's good design for sex only within marriage is oppressive, dehumanizing, destructive, and backwards. You must teach them the good and the true and the beautiful now. Don't put off these conversations. You wouldn't put off any other conversation that had life and death at stake. Would you? I don't know many parents that are like, well, fire safety. (sighs) I want to put off having that conversation with my kids, you know, teaching them stop, drop, and roll, and get out of the house. It's just too uncomfortable. It can wait. Nobody does that. Now, you understand that if you wait to teach those things, and the house catches on fire, your children are going to be in trouble. Do not wait until the house is on fire to teach your children what they ought to know. Help them to see God's design for marriage and family. there are plenty of opportunities. I mean, if you watch TV, there are commercials that they are probably asking you about. If you walk down the street, there are flags with variegated colors that they will ask you about. Don't view these as things like, shh, we can't talk about it. These are opportunities to teach them God's story, to teach them. That there are real villains in the world and real heroes. That the world is fallen. That the world is under the spell of that ancient dragon and serpent, Satan. And let them know that that snake will come and whisper in their ears all kinds of lies. Things like they should ignore what God's word says about holiness that they don't really need to do what God calls them to do. When your little one asks you about the rainbow flag, explain to them, that flag is flown by those who are under the dragon's spell. And it's flown because they hate God's word. They hate what God has said about marriage and family. We want to love them. We want to pray for them. We want them to know Jesus. We do. But you must understand That is the enemy's flag. Help them to know that they are living out a wonderful story in the world. That by faith, they are fighting beside the good and mighty king who breaks the dragon's spell and who will one day throw him into a lake of fire. Help them to see the good story of the Bible lest they be confused and think the world has a better story to tell. Prepare your children for what is before them. If you do not, they will lack any immune system to fight against the ideologies of the world. Diseases of unholy philosophies will consume your children and kill them. Teach them now. Build their strong immune system so that they are ready when the flaming arrows of the evil one come passing by their ears. Talk to your kids about marriage and family. Kids, maybe you've been listening, I don't know. Children, if you're here, this is the time to to line in, okay? You can trust your mom and dad. You can talk to your mommy and your daddy about anything. God has given them to you as a gift. They are your greatest guardians. Your mom and dad love you more than anyone else in the world. Trust them, listen to them. They are your primary teachers. Listen to what they say. Kids, your mom and dad are training you to fight with the king of kings and the lord of lords against the devil. It is a great and high calling. Listen to them. Parents, you must teach your children God's word. Must teach them about marriage and family. And you must practice sexual holiness in your own life. Verse 4 again. That each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in holiness and honor. Husbands, possess your own vessel. Drink from your own cistern. Get thirsty and drink often. Rejoice in your wife. Wives, enjoy the love, attention, and affection of your husbands. Delight in being the object of beauty that holds his gaze. Enjoy being the apple of your husband's eye. Relish being your honeybee's honeysuckle. I think there's a line about sugar and sweet iced tea, but I always mess it up. (laughs) You are the beloved of your husband. Say happily with the bride of Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Husbands, possess your own vessel. Wives, let him possess you. We can fight against sexual immorality by teaching rightly about sexual holiness in marriage and by practicing sexual holiness in our marriages. Secondly, we can fight against pornea by remembering who we are. Look at verse 7. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Maybe you are here this morning and you have failed to be sexually pure. Maybe you are failing. Friend, if you are in Christ, your sin does not define you. It is not who you are. One of the ways you can fight against that sexual immorality is by not allowing shame to keep you from repentance. Remember that God has called you to himself out of darkness and into light and return to him again. Follow the course tread by the prodigal in Luke 15. You know the story. He wishes his father dead takes his money, goes off into the far country, wastes all his wealth on wild living, and finds himself hungry for what the pigs are being fed. But then he comes to himself, Luke 15, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. Struggling Christian, maybe you have been off in the far country. Do not hesitate to come home. Don't worry about coming up with, well, just treat me as one of your hired servants. Because God the Father will hear none of it. He will run to you and greet you with kisses. Because when your faith is in Christ, he has dressed you in the robes of Christ already. There will be celebration at your repentance. Wayward Christian, it is never too late to come home. You will be welcomed. Remember who you are. You are God's. You are not your own, but belong to him. You were bought at a price. And Jesus Christ bled so that all of your sins can be forgiven. All of them. Your sins don't define you. Non-Christian, your sins do not have to define you. You can turn from them and be welcomed into the Father's house with open arms by way of the blood of Jesus. Those who trust Jesus have their sins cleansed by his blood. He died on the cross so that all who trust in him can be forgiven. He rose from the dead so that all who trust in him can have eternal life and the hope of sharing in a resurrection like his. You can be washed. You can be made clean. Trust Christ this morning. Talk to someone about it love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunks, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified, made holy, set apart, distinct. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. The blood of Jesus Christ gets out the deepest of stains. Those who have been called by Christ live pure lives. They confess their sins and are purified. Church, we can fight pornea by remembering that God has called us to himself and living in a manner that is consistent with that, by repenting when we stumble and fall. We fight against porneia by teaching rightly about sexual holiness, by practicing sexual holiness, by remembering who we are, remembering the God who has called us to himself, and by taking the warnings of Scripture seriously. You see that in verse 6? The Lord is an avenger in all these things. In verse 8, whoever disregards this, that's sexual holiness, disregards not man, but God. It's a real warning. I talked to a pastor friend of mine this week who was in youth ministry years ago. It's not Lucas, okay? He's in youth ministry now. I just want to be clear. He was in youth. I mean, I talked to Lucas this week too, but not not this conversation. He was in youth ministry long ago, and he was telling me a story about how when he first started, one of the mothers of one of the girls in his youth group came to him, and she said, I just want you to know, Pastor, that I've started my daughter on birth control. And I want you to know I did that because kids will be kids. I'm a realist. I understand she's probably going to have sex and I want to make sure she is protected from that awful consequence of an unwanted pregnancy. My brother said his heart broke at the words. So he says, uh, my heart hurt for both mother and daughter because it's probably pretty confusing for the girl to hear her mom say that she followed Jesus on the one hand and then on the other give her birth control which is an indication she doesn't really think it's all that big of a deal to have sex outside of marriage. It's probably pretty confusing, he said. But here was what stuck most with me. My my friend said this. What bothers me most is that the woman acted as if the worst possible result of sexual immorality was having a baby. She had it exactly wrong. A baby is the fruit of sex. A baby is a blessing from God. Yes, sex is supposed to be between married couples. So that when a child is produced, the the, the couple can raise the child together. But sex that produces children is still one of God's greatest gifts. The curse of sexual immorality is not a baby. No, The curse of fornication is everlasting torment under the wrath of God in hell. Those who persist in unrepentant pornea will not inherit the kingdom of God. I share that anecdote because I think many Christians act like that girl's mother. More concerned about an unwanted pregnancy than about the eternal well-being of their child. More concerned about safe sex, than sinning against a holy God who avenges in these matters. Friends, it is a silly thing to act as if fornication is no big deal because everybody does it. And yes, I chose this old word fornication instead of sexual immorality or instead of premarital sex because it sounds gross, like something you don't want to do. It's less palatable. It is a big deal. Jesus expects us to pursue sexual holiness. And if we are to be his people, we need to take these warnings seriously. Because habitual sexual immorality is fruit. It demonstrates we might not be tied to Christ. We need to take the Bible's warnings seriously if we are to fight against pornea. So we fight against sexual immorality by taking the Bible's warnings seriously, by teaching faithfully on marriage and family, by practicing sexual holiness in our marriages, by remembering who we are. And lastly, I want to say we fight porneia by fighting against fornication itself and porn in practical ways. And we fight because we can win. Verse 8, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Friends, victory... In the area of sexual holiness is possible because God has given you his Holy Spirit. It is not an unwinnable battle. Sexual holiness is not a hypothetical category in your life. You really can be holy as you work together with the power of God's Holy Spirit in you and as you work practically. So let's be precise. Unmarried Christian, do not date non-Christians. Paul's pretty explicit about this in 1 Corinthians. Do not be unequally yoked. For what do light and darkness have in common? The answer is nothing. Don't date non-Christians. Unmarried Christians, do not act like you are married before you are married. Positively, get married before you are sinfully married. And physically entangled in a way that is dishonoring to the Lord your God. Protect yourself against sexual immorality by seriously pursuing marriage and family. And when you're pursuing marriage, do not put yourself in positions that would allow you to compromise sexually. Young men, this is primarily your responsibility. Don't try to get alone with the person you are pursuing. Yes, get to know each other, but do not create opportunities for immorality. Fight for holiness, both the holiness of you and your sister in Christ. Plan for and pursue sexual purity in your relationships, young men, and for all of us, in, in our private lives. Pornography is everywhere. In fact, statistics show that most children have viewed pornography by the age of 10. At one point, it was estimated that pornography, and this is an old statistic, that pornography made up over 30% of internet traffic. That's more than Amazon and Netflix and your streaming services combined. People are watching it. Probably, probably many of us. The statistics about how many Americans consume pornography regularly are stomach lurching. Pornography rewires your brain in a way that is twisted. It makes you weak and it contributes to kidnapping, sex trafficking, slavery, abortion, pedophilia, and sexual exploitation. Viewing pornography is porneia. It is sexual immorality. It is wicked in the sight of God. We must fight it. So here are some practical ways to fight against pornography if you are struggling Christian first. Fight with somebody else. If you are struggling with pornography, you need to know that, that I am love you, I'm not ashamed of you, I care about you. And I speak on behalf of all who are members of First Baptist Church Waynesboro. We're not ashamed of you. We want to help you through this. Pornography is something that you have to overcome. You will more easily overcome it with the help of others. You need to know many Christians have fought... This battle against pornography and won, and you can too. Second, recognize that porn is bad for you spiritually, physically, and relationally. It is a sin against God. It is a sin against your own body. And it's a sin that actually changes your brain chemistry. In many men, it causes erectile dysfunction. It lowers your testosterone levels. It lowers your ability to recall information. There's a much longer list of all the ways it is bad for you. You can look those up online yourself. Pornography is bad for you. You need to realize this. Third, if you want to fight pornography well, get that person that you are fighting with and set up some speed bumps to help you when you are tempted. Ultimately, success will depend on your desire to live with integrity and in holiness, but the speed bumps will help you. Some examples are computer filters like Covenant Eyes, putting your screens only in shared spaces, and weekly check-ins with an accountability partner. Fourth, it is important to identify the times you are most tempted to view porn and the things that trigger your desire for it. Then take action to prepare yourself to withstand the temptation at the times when it comes. Help it to come not as an ambush, but as a battle that you are prepared to fight and win. Fifth, find more productive ways to spend your time and to relieve stress. Develop holy habits. Give yourself to Bible reading, to prayer. Go for a run, do push ups, develop a new skill. Find productive ways to replace pornography in your life. Sixth, remember again that you are loved by your brothers and sisters in Christ and be prepared for a long-term battle. Addictions are not generally overcome overnight. Be committed to long-term, ordinary obedience in the same direction for a long, long time. Porn is horrendous, it makes you weak, it encourages you to live a lie, and it must be repudiated in your life, it must be repented of. You must and can defeat it, and you must come to your brothers and sisters in Christ and ask for their help. And we're not going to look down on you when you need help and when you stumble. It would be a delight of your brothers and sisters in Christ. To help you get back on your feet again. Do not be ashamed to repent. Be ashamed of the sin. The church is here to fight for you and to fight with you. All of us struggle with sins. We all have different sins that we struggle against, and all of us ought to help one another to turn to God from idols. To serve him faithfully. Church, we really can please God by living holy lives. We really can live sexually pure lives. God really has given you his Holy Spirit. He really will give you victory over pornography and over sexual immorality. And yes, a commitment to sexual purity will make us distinct from the world. But that is the whole point. We have been saved out of the world, into the church, and onto the mission of God, that all nations might worship the Lord Jesus Christ as king. Friends, we belong to the king. We have not been conquered by the devil. And his sexual revolution will not reign in the church his head will be crushed beneath our feet. We will reign with Christ when he comes. So let us fight sexual immorality now. Let us fight for holiness together. Let us fight for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let us commit ourselves to walking to please the Lord our God. Just as we are walking together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it challenges us. Thank you that your spirit shapes us by your word more and more into the image of Christ. Lord, this morning, we confess that we are a sinful people. We confess that there is pornea in our lives. We thank you that you've given us Jesus Christ, who is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess them. And so in confessing our sins this morning, Lord, we also receive your pardon and rejoice in it. We rejoice as those who are hugged and loved and welcomed into your presence.